This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magania. TikTok. You have probably heard the analogy that medical school is like drinking from a fire hose. I felt like I was drinking from a tsunami as I tumbled along personally. And honestly, I don't feel like it stopped at medical school. In 2018, over 900,000 articles were published on Medline. There is so much out there and more comes out every day. It is so hard to keep up. Yeah, and obviously, we don't have to read all of those articles from every field. But in emergency medicine, we do have a responsibility to keep up on a breadth of topics. And with my attention span, getting through more than one article at a sitting is challenging. (laughs) How do you keep up with it all? Well, Sarah, because my husband is a certified technology nerd, pushing the boundaries of tech and utilizing tech has definitely been a part of my adult life. So for my personal learning, I really have enjoyed podcasts. I was an early adopter on that, and I really enjoy them. In fact, in other podcasts, we mentioned that I am somewhat of a podcast junkie here. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Another piece that I use to leverage technology is I am a member of a few active email listservs, and they give me a sense of other practice patterns, trends, and a safe place to ask questions and share information, albeit I know that's a little bit of not novel technology. (laughs) Yeah, I'd have to agree with the podcasts. I definitely use those for my learning. And I'm also a really big fan of social media. You guys probably know that. But I've learned some things on Twitter that I've applied on my next shift. And I also really appreciate having this great online community of peers, learners, educators, advocates, etc. There's so many amazing people to learn from. I also, of course, use various apps and online references on shift. But ultimately, it's all technology based now. That's a really great point that it's all technology-based for me, too. And that is exactly what we're talking about today, technology and lifelong learning. Yep. And so to do this, we're going to start out by interviewing some of our residents and attendings about how they use technology for lifelong learning. And then we'll talk with a few innovative ED physicians about some novel ways that doctors are leveraging technology to keep up. And finally, hear from an expert educator who actually studies how we use tech to learn. Oh, but wait, first, we don't have any stock in any of the brand names or platforms that they talk about. We just wanted to hear what technology others are using and why. I'm a fan of podcasts because I like to do two things at once. So while I exercise or while I drive, I use those for an educational resource. I also tend to look stuff up during my shifts, clinical decision rules and scores, other things that I can find useful in documentation. So electronic references are really helpful to me. Mostly what I do is, is podcasts and foam and then ECG blogs and tox blogs and lots of tox stuff. <laughs> so I use Rosh Review at home almost every day so that I can kind of do spaced repetition learning. So it basically tests me. And then I can prompt what I don't know to look into some sort of resource like rivers or something like that to find the actual um, answers if I don't know. And then I use my OneNote on Shift, which I try to fill out based on what I've learned from my Rosh review. I do use UpToDate, even though it can be a little more cumbersome. Um, And then there's a couple apps I use actually on Shift. One is Palm EM, 
just because it gives me a couple little details that I sometimes have to like go look up again and again, like what's the best type of suture to use for this location and what size for this location, things that I don't necessarily commit to memory. When I was a resident, they, they told us we had to do certain modules that were already collections of resources that were kind of pre-screened by program directors that were vetted for those purposes, as opposed to like just trying to find your own foam, which the quality can be questionable. So I liked those resources because they were already curated for us and we just went and did them and there were post-assessments and we got credit for it in terms of hours and things like that. I use my iPhone a lot for learning. I recently recertified for my tenure um, ABIM boards and probably about 100% of my learning and uh, test taking was all on my iPhone. So during downtime, catching the subway or, you know, downtime in meetings or so forth, I would use my iPhone and answer a few questions and read the vignettes and um, look things up on up to date. So I think that's been a big change versus, you know, when I first took the boards 10 years prior, it was all based on, you know, doing questions on a book. So that's been a significant change in my study habits. Um, I mostly listen to podcasts, which I'm sure is the common answer. <laughs> but I love that it's always updated, it's always new, and it's um, easier to listen to when you're working out or walking or driving to work. I also use online resources like Life in the Fast Lane and other FOMED resources to stay up to date. And then I feel like the residents teach me stuff all the time. The cool podcasts or anything that they're learning helps keep me up to date. I use it because it's convenient. Usually it's fairly up to date. They can cite the sources and it's just a quick way in between like different things or on a drive that I can keep up to date on things because it's sometimes just hard to go and sit down and search it out myself. I like it when it's pre-digested for me. You know, you're not lugging a book around studying a coffee shop. That's the only time I could do it. Now I can, you know, again, five, ten minutes here or there. I can easily knock out some questions and do some quick learning. That's the primary advantage. Okay, I'm hearing some themes. People want to multitask. We live busy lives, so learning has to fit into the crevices of our lives, and technology makes that easier. Whether it is studying on the subway or on a shift, we want content quick and accessible. Yeah, and people like that some of these modalities are easier to digest than a text or a journal article. But obviously, there are some dangers and disadvantages to that as well. Yes, and that is where it's helpful to hear from some of the experts. So before we get to the experts, let's stop here for a minute and define some terms that you might hear or might have already heard in this podcast. Space repetition. So space repetition is a learning technique of learning something and then reviewing the information at gradually increasing intervals. So we actually use this when we discuss a topic in one of our episodes. You might notice that we review that information weeks or even months later when we revisit that information from a different angle or as a heartbeat. Rosh Review. That's a learning system of questions, cases, and resources for board prep. There are obviously a lot of other board prep systems out there, and we have no skin in the game on that or any of them. Podcast. Oh, wait, if you are listening to this, you likely know what a podcast is. <laughs> in situ is Latin for in the original place. This is typically referred to in the context of simulation. 
And while podcasts are one of the most popular ways to keep up, there are some other cool novel ways out there to leverage technology. Yeah, so we interviewed Dr. Adam Doherty, who's an emergency medicine physician at Sutter Medical Center in Sacramento, and he's also the chief medical officer at SimX. He also happens to be a UC Davis EM grad. That's right. And Ryan Ribera, who's a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine at Stanford and the founder and CEO of SimX. So SimX, their company, uses virtual and augmented reality to teach medical learners of all levels. Adam and Ryan, first off, how do you guys use technology to learn? Yeah, I think these days it's hard to learn without leveraging technology, right? I think like a lot of people, I like a lot of the EM podcasts, of course, like MRAP, you know, MCRIT, that sort of thing. I really like a lot of the online uh, resources too, like uh, WikiEM. I'd say too, especially over the last year, I've started to leverage Twitter more and more. Once you get into the right circles and are following the right people, then um, you know a lot of the new evidence and uh, important papers start to kind of bubble up through that FOMED community. And that's become actually a really valuable source for me to find out what's coming next. One of the benefits of social media is you see not only the research, but the discussion that surrounds it. And so I've found a lot of benefit out of seeing how my colleagues interact with, you know, some of you know the papers that are coming out and hearing their own commentary and their own discussions about how they've implemented it in their practice. And you can get that through social media. I'd also echo um, Twitter, I think, is is very useful. It's very active and you can see how certain things are trending in certain ways, especially with some of the uh, innovative applications or things that aren't necessarily, you know, out there and, and published yet. Other groups like the the Facebook EM Docs group, I always find interesting cases. Day to day, I would say that uh, a lot of the online decision algorithms or scoring tools I find very useful. Anywhere where I can get to a disposition through uh, an easily accessible online tool uh, to help me support that, I think uh, has been has been very useful. Okay, now if you don't mind, could you define some terms for us? What is augmented reality and virtual reality and what's the difference? Sure. So, you know, these terms are actually relatively new and are still a little bit in flux, but I think there's a few important terms to know in the VR AR world. So, I think augmented reality is probably the the first and maybe simplest to understand. You see examples of this in things like Google Glass where you see the real world primarily. But uh, virtual content augments that, right? So you might be walking down the street and there's a little bubble that comes out of a restaurant that tells you what their Yelp ratings are. And it's utilizing hardware to help give you some additional information about the real world. Then there's mixed reality, which is where the real and the virtual world are intermingled. And so an example of this would be something like Pokemon Go, right? So it looks like there is a virtual character in the real world. You can walk around them, you can interact with them. Um, and that's, that's where mixed reality kind of has its place. And then virtual reality, you know, is where the entire world is virtualized. So virtual characters, virtual environments, you are kind of cut off from the real world around you. And even within that, there's probably a couple important distinctions to highlight um, in terms of types of virtual reality experiences. You see kind of the what we call three degrees of freedom experiences that you get with, say, a Google Cardboard or um, a Samsung Gear VR device where you can look around you, 
but that's kind of the level of freedom you have. And then you have the six degrees of freedom experiences that you get with the newer and kind of more complex hardware where you can walk around inside of the virtual environment. And that's really where you get, I think, the holodeck type of experience, right? Where you can interact with virtual characters, you can walk around an environment and pick up tools and things like that. Tell us about how physicians are using both AR and VR to learn. So I think there are a number of different applications and, you know, it is such a new and rapidly growing field that people are trying anything and everything to see not only what sticks, but also what's really effective in in the learning and the development aspect. So what we're seeing a lot of are anatomy trainers. So this will give you the ability to, you know, fly into the body, into whatever physiologic um, process or concept that you're thinking about and uh, be able to do anything from, you know, preoperative mapping to uh, looking at how the, uh, you know, cardiovascular system works in cardiogenic shock, and then you uh, apply a treatment and how does that change. Other tools uh, specific to uh, EM, um, we're seeing these uh, 360 experiential devices where you're in the room in a mass casualty uh, trauma bay, and you're seeing everything that's going on. And, you know, you feel the, the stress, you feel the experience, basically getting you exposed to that, uh, to, to feel like what it would be like, see what roles people take and um, treatments that uh, are provided. I think, you know, it's important to, to think about the, the whole spectrum of training. So um, VR and AR can be applied day one in medical school all the way through to a 20-year experienced attending physician and the, uh, the flexibility and the customization around it, um, you know, even around the same case can be changed for the specific learning point that you're trying to make in that scenario. For our product at uh, Simex, you know, we're making cases that will bring multiple people into a room. So you're putting roles on each uh, individual learner. And uh, at the end of it, you are uh, evaluating the case based off the, uh, the whole uh, case progression and, um, you know, this can be multidisciplinary as well. So you can have uh, medical students, pharmacy students, nursing students, uh, all learning simultaneously, which we haven't traditionally seen a lot with a, a mannequin-based sim or traditional simulation. And uh, we find some interesting potentials in that as well. So besides the cool factor, why would someone want to use this? I think there are a few important points here. I mean, so one, when you have a virtual patient, they can be a baby or a grandmother. They can be vomiting or missing limbs. You could have a patient give birth over the course of a scenario, right, and treat the mother and the baby. And so you get a lot of flexibility in what you can portray. I think in traditional simulation, you know, sometimes we struggle to portray even, you know, how sick does my patient appear, which is such an important part of clinical practice, but is, is just hard to convey with current technology. Also, really being able to portray any environment. So, you know, we've done cases in moving helicopters or you pull someone out of a burning car and resuscitate them on the ground. And that environmental realism is actually, you know, a really important part, especially of certain types of practice. And that's, I think, more easily represented in VR. And then also being able to represent any tool. I mean, sometimes we don't think about the resources involved in, um, you know, taking equipment out of circulation in the hospital to be able to bring it into sim, or sometimes certain equipment is just challenging to find, you know, put a Roboa in a simulation or a Lucas device in a sim or 
you know, we have a case where you use a Gamow bag, which we're all supposed to kind of know how to use, but you don't really come into contact with a lot. But that's super easy to bring into a virtual reality sim. Another important point that we've found as, as we've built out a lot of experiences in VR is that it actually also becomes exceptionally good at combining the medical and psychosocial elements of simulation. So a, a good example is we're building cases for a cardiac care unit, a pediatric CCU. And several of the cases are really just neonatal sim, except the parents are in the room and they're crying and you have to explain to them what is happening, um, which is obviously a critical part of being a pediatric CCU doctor. But it, in current sim tech is really hard to replicate, right? I mean, you get the neonatal mannequin and all the equipment and you get the trained actors there. And it's the kind of thing you can only do on the 21st at 10 a.m. because that's the only time everyone can be there. Um, but in virtual reality, you can just pop that up anytime, anywhere, and have the medical and the psychosocial and the environmental complexity. How accessible is this technology to the average physician? It's very accessible. We often, you know, use the joke that we're just waiting for the technology to to catch up to the the concept that we are trying to deliver. And every year, it seems that we're getting, you know, closer and closer. Honestly, it's it's already there. You can get a Facebook device, the Quest. You can get it for five hundred bucks. Where traditionally a VR setup would be, you know, an entire room with multiple devices, multiple computers. That's all scaling down into one headset that you can throw into your backpack. And you know, we could be learning simultaneously with people around the world. So we could be here in Davis with a headset. We could have someone back at Stanford with a headset. And you can be learning together with, you know, some of the greatest instructors in the world even, uh, which is particularly useful for people in rural communities, emerging markets, um, third world who can't afford or don't have the infrastructure. And this is a way to deliver top quality simulation anywhere for uh, a fraction of the cost. You need a couple $500 headsets. You need to connect to the internet, at least at some point, to download some software. And that's pretty much it. Um, and it's really flexible in terms of the spaces that you can do it in. I'd say just logistically, you probably need at least 8 by 8 foot area, but we can do sims in up to a 25 by 25 foot space. And, you know, you can set it up in a back of a classroom while you lecture in the front. You can do it as part of a small group session. We've set up sims in people's kitchens before. <laughs> um, so it's, it's actually, I think that's one of the strengths of the technology is it's a lot easier than hauling around a mannequin. Okay, so now the harder question. What are some of the downsides to AR and VR? So, uh, again, you know, that's, that's one of the areas where we're just waiting for the tech to catch up. So first and foremost would probably be the tactile feedback. This isn't using your hands to put in a central line. Eventually it will be, but um, for now you're holding controllers. Uh, historically, there has been some, you know, nausea, some disorientation. Uh, again, a lot of that is, is a thing of the past. I would add here, just like any simulation costs, Cost may or may not be prohibitive to your particular institution, and you still need someone to control the scenario, even if it is remotely. And lastly, where is this going? What is the future of AR and VR? I think an important point to understand is that VR is a hardware platform, like a computer or a mobile device is a platform, right? And so I think it's going to head in several different directions that will exist simultaneously. I mean, I think 
there will always be a space for full virtual reality training where it's important to be able to replicate a specific environment that you can't recreate in real life. I think also we'll see as uh, AR headsets start to improve, we'll see more augmented reality training that can happen in situ because it would be very nice, as you can imagine, to be able to put on a headset, look at the same you know, ED trauma bay that you practice in in real life, but see a virtual patient there, use the same tools that you use in real life and be able to interact with that virtual patient. And I think that that will be a use case that will be extremely valuable. I think also we'll see uh, AR and VR projections over task trainers to be able to get the combination of the tactile realism from some of these low-cost task trainers, but the visual realism that you get from VR and AR as well. I think ultimately, once people develop better tools for interacting with the virtual environment and experiencing those like tactile components of the interaction, then that's when you start to see like the real holodeck experience. And you start to wonder if there's really any other modality that is going to be valuable at that point, to be honest. When you can replicate the visual and the tactile elements of a real patient encounter, then you've kind of achieved the the goal of simulation. And everybody is trying to figure out how to apply VR and AR uh, in really any industry. You know, the projections for healthcare are in the multi-billions of dollars for uh, VR over the next 10 years. And it's just a matter of how and why to use the technology, not just to use it because it's, you know, cool and sexy. And that's where we come from. You know, we are practicing emergency docs. We want to use this to improve clinical training, uh, reduce medical errors, and to save lives down the road and uh, make for better learning and training. Anything else you guys think we should know? Another point that I was thinking of making in a previous comment that I'll just throw in here, which is that, you know, I think with any new and emerging technology, what you see in the first phase is people trying to take constructs from other technology and applying it here. So in the same way that when mobile devices first came out, you'd see people making like almost like Microsoft Word and putting it on a phone and it had like file drop downs and it was extremely challenging to use until people started to understand how to make a native touch app, right? And I think this we see the same thing with VR and AR and, you know, without casting aspersions on any particular product out there, sometimes we see people who are taking like screen-based simulators and putting it into VR or taking something that would have been a PowerPoint presentation basically and putting it into a VR environment I think those are kind of reflective of the fact that some some people are trying to still wrap their heads around how to make something that leverages VR in a native way and produces an experience that can only be replicated in virtual reality. So I think as the technology matures, we're going to see more and more solutions that utilize the tech maybe in ways that we can't even conceive of very well right now. The next platform we explore is Slack. Slack is essentially an application that is a chat room for teams to communicate and share information, files, and allow discussions in a semi-private and structured way. So next, we're going to talk to Dinah Wallen. She's an assistant clinical professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics at the UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, and she explains how she's using Slack in the Alien Leaders Library. First off, how do you personally use technology for your own learning? I hate to age myself as a dinosaur, but I actually don't use technology all of that much for for lifelong learning. I 
actually really enjoy still reading paper journals. I, I still enjoy reading books. I enjoy going to talks and seeing people in person. So I am trying to use technology a little bit more. We utilize Slack a lot between our group to share articles and share tidbits and updates and podcasts and things like that. So I'm trying to stay connected that way. So tell us about the Leaders Library and what inspired you to start it. The Leaders Library is our career development book series through Alien. The way that this was born was a few years ago, I was talking with one of our other, our more senior faculty members about different books about communication and leadership and other career development sort of topics. And she gave me a list that she recommended. And then it was such a great list that I thought, why shouldn't our whole department benefit from this? So we started having a quarterly book club for our faculty and our learners that we actually held via Google Hangout. That worked really well. We were able to have meaningful conversations. People shared some really vulnerable topics. And from those one-hour encounters, the participants really gained um, a lot of actionable items. And we really had great discussions. And so after we had several of those, my colleague and I started talking about, well, this is working really well. Why don't we try to expand this a little more broadly? One to bring in some really cool experts in leadership and communication from other institutions, other areas of the country, and even the world. And then two, to broaden the participant base, to bring this message and this discussion out to more people than just a few in our department. And so that was the inspiration for the Leaders Library. And what we do is we select a book ahead of time that has broad applicability to us in emergency medicine, no matter what type of practice you do, no matter what your role is. Via the Alien website, we get uh, a list of about 40 people to sign up. And then we utilize Slack to have asynchronous discussion over the course. The first time we did it, we did it for five straight days. The second iteration, we did it for three days alternating. And we're open to some feedback to see exactly how we do it for the next time. But basically, we have facilitators lead every day of discussion with prompts on Slack and participants throughout the day, throughout the night, depending on their schedule, just sort of weigh in and start offering opinions and dialogue. And by the end of the week, we have a lot of really cool discussion threads and items that I then will collate into a summarized, de-identified write-up to publish and share all of the cool things that we as a group came up with. What is the advantage of doing it digitally and asynchronously? So I think that there are a multitude of advantages. The first one just being that, of course, we can't assemble people. I mean, we have participants from Australia, from Saudi Arabia, from many other places. It's unrealistic to expect all of us to physically be in the same location at the same time. So it's got to be digital. And then the benefit of asynchronous is if we're coming from all over the world and all of the different time zones and vast majority of us are emergency clinicians, our schedules are all over the place. There is no way that we could find an optimal one-hour window or even a few-hour windows where everyone would be available. And so we figured that it would make it as easy as possible for this wide variety of people all over the place to be able to participate without worrying about one time that they could potentially forget or not be able to make. It's been really neat to see a group of strangers who have never met each other before, who live 
in completely different states and again, even in completely different countries, coming together and sharing um, experiences that happened to them as a child, experiences that happened to them during training, things that they face now, questions they have, weaknesses they have, eliciting advice from the group and then the group sharing, here's how I cope with that difficult sort of situation. Here's my strategy for developing more think time or giving myself more rest. And seeing this like really deep dialogue with reciprocal mentoring going on between people who did not know each other and, and likely won't interact again was really cool. It was, it felt really neat to be kind of responsible for scaffolding that and allowing that connection to happen in a way that, it, I mean, it just wouldn't have happened otherwise. And what did you find were some of the pitfalls or disadvantages? Well, I mean, for example, on the last day of our most recent iteration of the book club, there, w- there was not a lot of participation. I look at Slack, it looks like it's working to me, but I, I don't know if it's working for others. And if I can't reach them, I can't ask this question, right? So it's hard to tell, is this just, you're not into this topic of conversation? Is it a super busy day? And just coincidentally, all of us are kind of booked all day today, so we're not going to be able to jump in. What is going on? Whereas in a room full of people, if you're giving a lecture or holding a discussion and you're not getting a lot of participation, you know, you can ask like, hey, you know, what's going on here, guys? How can I make this more engaging? But if you're kind of facing the void of the internet, it's a little bit more difficult to elicit engagement and even read your audience and assess maybe why things aren't going quite the way that you planned. So overall, do you feel it was a success? It's been really, really fun to be a participant and a facilitator. And we, of course, welcome all people from all different backgrounds. And we'd love to have some of your audience join us. Lastly, we spoke with Dr. Jeff Riddell, who is an assistant professor of clinical emergency medicine at USC Keck School of Medicine. He is an education researcher and recently published a paper on how people use podcasts for learning. So Jeff, tell us a little bit, like how and why do you personally use technology for lifelong learning? When I was a resident, I think we read the textbook and went to conference, and that was kind of what was spoon-fed to me. But nowadays, if I think about how I stay up to date, it's, it's all tech. Even the textbook that we read is a PDF form of Rosen's or Tintinale's because I want to lug around the real textbook. I use Twitter uh, to follow people that are staying up to date on the trends in our specialty. And uh, I use email. I get like tables of contents of journals sent to my email. There's obviously the blogs and the podcasts, which have exploded and are a huge source. I listen to podcasts on my commute as I ride my bike to work. Uh, I read the blogs of a handful of colleagues who break down new papers, break down new controversies. I use one app, uh, Read by QXMD. I don't get any money from them, but it's a, just one of the many, many apps that are available that kind of curate information based on keywords and specialties and journals that you care about. So it's like all of those things. And and when you step back and think about it, it's like all techified now. I don't really do anything in analog, uh, which is kind of weird to think about. Of all of these different modalities that you use or that you see other people using, what do you think are some of the most useful ways to learn with tech? I think it's the social things. And so for me, that's kind of the Twitter, the blogs, and the podcasts. I think when we're learning in isolation, it's just less 
effective. I think when we learn in either a virtual community or a real community, I feel like it, we, we learn better and deeper and we get to ask questions and we, we remember who told us something. And there's just another layer of richness and depth to it. And so I think when I read things from friends on Twitter, um, that really sticks. When I listen to a human voice, you know, human voice that I feel like I know, teach me something that that can have an impact. But like, I remember the intro to MRAP from like February of 2014 or something. Uh, Swami talked about a crazy case of, of whippets um, causing subacute, subacute combined degeneration of the spinal cord. And I finally saw that case clinically and I was like, oh my gosh, Swami told me the story. And I remember what I, you know, that, that he told a story about a patient he saw who had the same thing. And that's how I remember it. So I think those kind of connections are really important. I love podcasts also, and many other people mentioned using podcasts as their main modality for technology and learning, and that's an area of expertise for you. What are some of the trends you found with podcasting? So, yeah, we saw the writing on the wall. We started looking at this in 2015, and uh, we surveyed residents uh, across the country, 12 different residency programs, um, over 300 residents, and we found like 89% of residents are listening to podcasts at least once a month. I mean, that's like 90% of residents. That's really high. We also found that it's a little over 70% of residents said that podcasts change their clinical practice, uh, either somewhat or very much. Uh, there was also a survey by Youth Purdy up in Canada that showed a similar thing among Canadian residents. And there was another study by Mike Mallon. But those three studies that kind of came out in that era was like, whoa, yes, this podcasts are a thing. And we kind of sensed it because we were residents. And that's how I was starting to learn and how I was starting to transition my learning. And then we kind of put the data out there and I think it surprised a lot of people. Um, but definitely huge increase in the last, you know, even since I started training when it was just MRAP and now there's like a whole bunch of podcasts. Um, there's been a tremendous growth in our specialty in that area. And so I think it is as popular as we think it is. Uh, and I think it's not going to change anytime soon. And so then you explored this a little bit deeper in your more recent paper. What did you guys find there? So after that first paper, we did a qualitative study. And so um, that involved interviewing 16 residents um, from uh, three or four different institutions and just sitting down with them for an hour and picking their brains about, you know, why and how they listen. And we kind of saw three big themes um, in that data. And the first is that that podcasts kind of afford um, unique opportunities for learning that didn't really exist before. And, and generally that happens in the context of learning during driving, learning during exercise, multitasking, kind of creating more learning during the day and kind of opportunistically taking advantage of that time for learning. And then we also saw this really interesting trend that um, podcasts helped people feel connected to a community, um, to their professional community, to their local community of people who listened near them, and also to the podcast hosts. And uh, like that social element that I mentioned earlier, that was a really powerful theme it kind of caught us by surprise, but then it was like, yeah, that makes sense. Even though we're listening by ourselves, we feel like we're connected to emergency medicine. We feel like we're connected to the literature, to these, to these educators in a very real relational way. And then the third thing we saw was that um, podcasts were facilitating personalized learning in, in, in ways that uh, residents could, you know, if they just had a case of traumatic arrest on their shift, you know, on their bus ride home, they could listen to a podcast about traumatic arrest and see, you know, compare how they did it with how the experts would do it. Um, or if they identified areas that they felt were weak, they can just pull up podcasts in those areas. And so it's kind of cool to 
get a sense of of how this technology is really changing the way that these residents and now me as a non-resident continue to learn. I love that. And I think it is such an honor to be a part of that landscape with EM Pulse. Um, and obviously, the, if you're listening to this, you use podcasts as a way to learn as well. What are some of the challenges that our listeners should be aware of and the caveats of using podcasts for lifelong learning? Yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so some of the tensions that we have seen in our research kind of relate to the benefits. So like, I love listening while I ride my bike, but some of the stuff we're hearing is that maybe listening while riding means I'm listening while distracted. And if I'm listening while distracted, maybe I'm not um, walking away with as much as I want to. And, you know, at the same time, if I'm just listening to what's pushed to me, as opposed to actively searching out content, maybe I'm just getting kind of one side of the story. And then with the celebrity culture in our specialty and with, you know, medicine and society in general, just because a very famous podcaster is very opinionated about critical care or whatever says something, does that make it so? We run the risk when we just listen to podcasts of not really going back and critically uh, examining what it is that the podcasters say. And so none of these things are new. You know, they're all similar-ish problems with reading a textbook, right? Like, am I really paying attention while I read a textbook or am I falling asleep? <laughs> <laughs> the the ideas of divided attention and, and, you know, celebrities saying something, you know, because I feel like I know them and information being pushed to me as, as opposed to me going out and finding it, those aren't really new in the world but they are what we're seeing with podcasts. And so we got to kind of figure out uh, how to make the best of it despite those limitations. You know, it's kind of interesting. A lot of the things that you're mentioning as ways to look at these critically are things that come with experience and time. What do you see as the future for our young learners and for our residents that are in training? Where's all of this going with podcasting? Well, I think hopefully it will start in residency, and I hope that, that we as educators can engage our residents when they're still residents in ways that will allow them to be critical appraisers, people who listen with a skeptical eye. You know, in the same way we train them in Journal Club to be skeptical about articles and to go through them methodically, to also have that same lens when they listen to a podcast or a lecture without, you know, completely killing the joy of listening to podcasts. Hopefully we can lay those groundworks there and then. Once you're out in the community, that's another thing we need to figure out and study. How do we um, avoid those pitfalls once you leave the safe confines of academia? Yeah, so one final question for you here. So bringing it back to some of the other things we've talked about on this podcast, we've talked about AR and VR. We've talked about using things like Slack to communicate. Where do you think more broadly the future of technology is in terms of learning? So that's an interesting question. I think it's complicated because there have been a lot of things with promise, you know, since the inception of technology and some stick and some don't. And if you look at, you know, FOMED, for example, on social media, that was kind of a big buzzy thing 10 years ago. And now it's just kind of an accepted part of how all of our learners train and learn. I think the AR VR thing is probably real and going to significantly change the way we do simulation. I think along those same lines, some of the new machine learning technology uh, is going to change the way we practice. And so I think understanding how to interact with machines when it comes to our patients uh, in the clinical area 
and recommendations from machines that have learned and been trained, I think is going to be a very interesting thing. Hopefully not too soon because I'm not ready for that. <laughs> but I think learning is going to continue to be more and more of a networked activity and teaching and learning will occur in these networks that we're seeing, these communities of practice that may or may not be geographically co-located. I think that the network aspect is going to continue to play a significant role in how we learn. I don't think that's ever going to change, but the technology of how we're connected through those networks has already changed. And so I think we need to pay attention to that as well. Pulse check. We explored several different technologies today. We talked with Adam and Ryan about AR and VR, which has the potential to revolutionize the way we use simulation. And then Dinah spoke about the Leaders Library on Slack as a way to bring together an international learning community. And then Jeff, well, everyone mentioned podcasts because it allows for learning to happen in the crevices of our life. So during our discussion, three themes emerged. One, we want to make the most of our time. Jeff calls this opportunistic engagement, also known as multitasking. Two, we are looking for a sense of community. We learn deeper together. And three, we like personalized learning. We want to feel productive, and technology helps us to have either a broad or targeted learning plan. As we discussed today, there are advantages and disadvantages to podcasts and technology-based learning. We want our podcast to reflect the best evidence that is out there and to meet the needs of our community of listeners. So we are excited to announce the EM Pulse Advisory Panel. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) We have recruited a multidisciplinary panel of stakeholders to review, critique, and guide us in our goal to bring research and expert opinion to the bedside. And today you actually heard from two of our panel members, Dr. Jeff Riddell and Dr. Adam Doherty. We also want to hear from you. If you have ideas for topics or ways to improve the podcast, you can contact us directly on our website or leave a comment in the iTunes podcast. We would also love to hear how you are using technology for your own pursuits of lifelong learning. Connect with us on social media at EM Pulse Podcast and pass the word along to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate those of you who have rated us and left reviews on iTunes. This truly helps others discover us. And save the date for the 43rd annual UC Davis Emergency Medicine Winter Conference, February 24th through 29th at the Ritz-Carlton in Lake Tahoe. It is an annual fun day for me, for sure. I will be there, and all of the information on registering is in our show notes. And thank you to our department for supporting a novel way to share our department's resources. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for being our very own tech nerd. See you all next time.